Okay. We can always go no sound, and I can be loud. I don't know. All right. Hey, welcome back to Genesis. Welcome back to Genesis. So, like over a year now, we were going through the book of Genesis together as a church. And it honestly had been a little bit of a tough decision for me to come back to Genesis this morning. Um, A lot has happened, right? We uh, lost a pastor. Pastor Joey left. We had a prayer vigil for Rosalind White. I also had a baby, which meant you had a guest speaker for two weeks. And then I come back and I give you a three-week topical series on the biblical family. Uh, The summer has started kind of like a tornado. A lot has gone on in the life of this small church. And I have a feeling with all these replant initiatives and these dates I'm throwing out at you every week, it's just going to keep getting busier, right? A lot is happening. A lot is going to continue happening. I consider doing more preaching that uh, is centered on, you know, replanting and things that we need to talk about right now. Um, Our makeup as a church, you know, I considered going over to Acts and looking at... um, what it looks like to, to start a church from the, from the ground up, right, and seeing the early church fathers. And we still may do that at the launch of the replant. I don't know. Uh, Acts may be the next book. We'll see. I'll pray about that. Um, I, I thought about different things, right? And we started replanting August of 2020. That's when this was announced. That means it's been almost a year. But the one thing that's been constant through all the changes in almost a year now is God's Word right? God's Word has been what united us through all of the changes and the the fast pace that we've been trying to go. We've bonded over the creation story. We've bonded over Cain and Abel and the flood, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, over the covenant of Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham and Sarah's journey battling uh, barrenness and their understanding of faith and trusting the Lord. The covenant then being transferred to Isaac and now to Jacob. We've bonded over these things, haven't we? And going back to the Word, going back to Genesis, is like, you know, a cup of coffee after our jet lag of the last several months, I feel like. It it allows us to find stability and unity in in the Word of God that we've been preaching through together. It truly feels like, and this makes a pastor's heart so happy, that it is God's Word and God's Word alone that is keeping us together. Right? I mean, what else? You know, our mission statement says God's word is our foundation and our delight. Right? This is what binds us. This is our standard. This is what we all try to do and live together and believe. Right? So, since God's word has been holding us together and and we're finding stability this morning, who's ready to find out what happened to Jacob? Can you remember what happened back in chapter 27? We have the famous switcheroo. The brothers, Esau and Jacob, their father, Isaac, their mother, Rebekah. You know, Rebekah fathered, uh, uh, favored Jacob. Isaac favored Esau. But God already told Rebekah that Jacob was going to inherit the blessing regardless of what they wanted, right? He was going to be the one who received the baton. But instead of working things out and setting up Jacob to be the inheritor, the secondborn, In the end, Isaac is still fighting for Esau to receive the blessing. The hairy one, right? The the soup eater. The birthright seller. 
So Rebekah gets this scheme with Jacob to go and prepare this required meal that his father asks for so that he can prepare the blessing. So Jacob gets dressed in animal skins, right? You remember? It's one of my favorite stories in Genesis. And uh, he, he, he um, wants to look like and smell like Esau. And remember, Isaac is like half blind. He can't see really good. And so he goes in, he, he brings his soup that, um, or his, his beefy game, whatever, that, that Rebekah prepares, and it works. Isaac gives Jacob the blessing. And if you don't remember, Jacob, Yaakov in Hebrew means deceiver, the betrayer. He's living up to his name from the very beginning when he grabbed his brother's heel coming out of the womb. In the end of the story, nobody wins, right? Everybody's a sinner. Everybody was a hot mess, a dysfunctional family in that story. The real winner was Jesus Christ, who takes our place when we approach the Father, who gives us animal skins to cover our deceit. But now Jacob is in trouble, right? Esau wants to kill him. Rebekah says, you need to flee. You need to go back to Uncle Laban's house. Go back to Haran. Find a woman there. Get married. And as far as we know, this is the last interaction Jacob ever has with his parents. You know, what, what a sad ending. But what we're going to see here is Jacob receives these instructions and has a little pit stop and starts to have a dream. He receives a revelation from God concerning the covenant, that he would take the covenant. And this causes him to respond in worship, in devotion, and in sacrifice before the Lord. And so family... When face to face with the revelation of God ourselves, the only right response is our own devotion and commitment and sacrifice. What we'll see expressed through the local church, the Bethel of God. So I've got three R's for you this morning. The results, the revelation, the response, the results, the revelation the response. Verses 1 through 5 tell us what happened to Jacob. He got to have one more talk with his dad, it seems like. Um, we see that his dad evidently accepted things in these first few verses. He blessed him and he directed him, is what the text says. The blessing was more poignant than the blessing he gave in chapter 27 because that one was meant for Esau, remember? He thought he was blessing Esau. And that was all about, you know, God Almighty make you, or no, it was about. Um, uh, I'm reading the wrong one. Well, this one says, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of many peoples. And this is important because he's giving the blessing to God for the life of Jacob, for the blessing of Jacob. For Esau's blessing, it was concerned with being a mighty warrior and people being afraid of him, right? And people serving him and bowing down to him. But now, in this true blessing that he gives to Jacob, he says, God Almighty, God Almighty, God Almighty. He is the one blessing you. Isaac has finally seceded to God's sovereign plan, right? Isaac has let go of trying to do things his own way. He knows that he's not in control of the blessing any longer. God is in control of the blessing. Family, we know what God requires of us. But many times we choose to suppress his ordination over our lives because of what we want instead. I'll have you know that you can spend an entire lifetime 
striving with God, as Isaac did, trying to obtain the life we want rather than the life he intends to give us. Learn from this example. That is a life wasted. That is a life wasted. Submit yourself to the sovereignty of God. Embrace his providence. But before, they in this conversation, after he gives the blessing, he also gives the direction. Go to Badanaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban. So Rebekah says to Jacob, go find a wife that's not a Canaanite. Isaac says, go find a wife that's not a Canaanite. First time they ever agree on something, right? Pretty cool. Maybe they're making up. Isaac says, don't marry a Canaanite woman. You are God's chosen instrument. He's building a nation out of you. There is to be no intermingling with foreign gods. Well, in verses 6 through 9, Esau gets word of this, right? What's verse 6 say? Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Badan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and gone to Badan Aram. So verse 8 When Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife. Besides the wives he had, Mehalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, sister of Naboth. Uh, Last we heard about Esau, he wanted to kill Jacob, right? That's why Rebekah said, you need to flee. But now Esau hears what pleases his dad, which he should have known all along, but Isaac might have been kind of a loose guy himself, we find out. Anyways, he decides to also go and marry a woman of their own family lineage, of their own tribe. And you know, I saw this, and I, I was confused. Why did Moses tell us this? Why, what, is, what is Esau's intent to go and, and marry a wife now, after he's already had two Hittite wives? Uh, I thought at first, maybe he thinks if he does all this, now there's still a chance he can nab the blessing, right? After Jacob got it, he was saying, Father, please, is there anything, anything you can give me? You know, and of course there wasn't. So maybe he's still squirming to try to get something. But I don't think that's the case. I think Moses recorded this to show us that Esau repented and sought to honor his father and mother after all this took place. Moses already points out that Esau decides not to kill Jacob. He doesn't go after him to murder him. That's an honorable thing to do, to not kill your brother, right? And then this verse reminds us what was reiterated twice in chapter 27, at the end of chapter 26 and at the end of chapter 27, that Esau had two Hittite wives, and they made life miserable for Rebekah. And so now Esau is realizing he's lived by the God of his gut for too long. He's tired of selling his soul for soup. So he's going to try to honor his father and mother and lay down his flesh once and for all now that he's literally lost everything. And it's interesting, I think, that he goes to the daughter of Ishmael. Who's Ishmael? Son of Hagar and Abraham, right? Illegitimate firstborn um, who was kicked out of the camp by Abraham. But the Lord took care of them. And the Lord, you know provided for them and allowed them to turn into a nation as well. This was God's providence. And so now I think Ishmael's story of grace is being paralleled with Esau's story of grace. 
Esau is not forgotten by God either, even though he did not inherit the blessing. He was loved of the Lord, and he is not the abandoned, unwanted brother. Right? Neither was Ishmael, neither is Esau. This is the results of everything that happened in chapter 27. And what I want you to know from all of this is that it's not too late for you to repent either. The grace of God stands ready to save you. Don't wait until you're at rock bottom like Esau. Come to Christ today. Confess your sins. Watch him change your life. This is just the aftermath. Um, We learn, though, that God can do a lot out of a bad situation. Because all of life hangs on the revelation of God to man. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about. The revelation. The revelation. Look at verse 10. Again, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set upon the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. We'll stop there for a moment. Um, Jacob follows the instructions to flee from what Rebekah says. And then dad says, no, go and find a wife uh, more directly. Either way, he's going back to Haran, Padan Aran. And it's just an easy 550-mile hike, no big deal. You know, take a night or two, right? No, it's going to take a little while. It's a journey. And so he's not going to make it in one trip. So he stops for the night to take a rest. And, you know, we read this weird thing that strikes us. He puts a pillow under his head made of stone or something like that. And then he has this dream. The stone isn't magic. The stone will come back in a few minutes, though, so hang on to the stone. Uh, But he falls asleep with this stone, and he has this epic dream. He sees the Lord, Yahweh, God Almighty, the God of Abraham, who has revealed himself to uh, Isaac, his father, and now to Jacob. Probably for the first time, he has this great revelation. No doubt, Jacob knew the Lord. He had heard the stories of his grandpa. He had heard the stories of his dad and how they walked with the Lord and met the Lord. But this God was now revealing himself to Jacob in a mysterious way that was not revealed in the same manner and fashion to his fathers. They, you know, the Lord would appear and just like start, start talking. We might call that like a theophany uh, in the Old Testament. Here, the Lord is revealing himself to Jacob through a dream. A dream. It's not the first time we see this happen, though, in Genesis. You remember what happened when Abraham went to the Philistine land and he met King Abimelech? And he said, here's my sister. You can have her, right? Second time. And he did take her. And then the Lord revealed himself to Abimelech. How? In a dream. And said, you're a dead man, right? And, and uh, told him to give Sarah back to Abraham. Uh, so dreams are not new, so to speak, especially the Lord revealing himself. Dreams are an interesting topic in the Bible, but, but just real quick. And we'll see that more with Joseph, right? He's the dreamer. So it's, it's an interesting um, topic. But what I want you to know, just as we're going through this, is that dreams aren't trustworthy. And we don't need to be looking for a revelation of God in our dreams, right? 
I want to teach you how to read the Bible. And that's not what the Bible is telling us to do. We have no command from Scripture for us to be interpreting our dreams like the Lord is trying to show us something or communicate to us. God reveals himself to us through two methods. They are general revelation and special revelation. Have you ever heard those terms? General revelation, Psalm 19, the the, the heavens declare the glory of God. All creation boasts and testifies. Romans 1, we know there is a God because there is a world. There must be a maker. There is a creator. This is general revelation. All man is without excuse. Special revelation tells us who this God actually is, right? How do we know anything about God? Because he tells us who he is, right? How has he told us? Special revelation is every time God showed up to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Special revelation is God talking to Moses through a burning bush. Special revelation is every time God ever gave a prophet a message to declare to sinful people. Special revelation is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, being born of a virgin, entering the world fully God and fully man to tell us who he is. Special revelation is his death and resurrection and our only hope at having a gospel that saves us. Right? And special revelation is the book you hold in your hands. 66 books of special revelation. God's word directly given to us. Therefore, we don't need God to speak to us through dreams, right? Amen. We can move on from that. But I say all that for context because ironically, Jacob's dream is largely concerned with his self-revelation. The first thing Jacob sees in his dream, stairway to heaven, right? Uh, uh, Maybe Eddie could have played some some Led Zeppelin for us this morning. Um, I did listen to that song just in preparation for this sermon, just so you know. Um, but, uh, but no, it's, uh, I think Jacob came up with that, that phrase first. Um, we see a ladder or a stairway. Um, the Hebrew word is sulam. Uh, it's only used right here in the whole Old Testament. Not used anywhere else. Sulam. But in old ancient manuscripts and Mesopotamian writings... It was used a lot more frequently to describe epic pagan temples called ziggurats. You might remember that word from when we looked at the Tower of Babel. Ziggurats were these big structures that were built um, to get to God. That man might be able to be in contact with the gods, plural, pagan gods. And so Sulam would be used to describe that stairway that went up to the top of that large structure And now God is literally giving a stairway to heaven for Jacob, one that would triumph all the other pagan gods and pagan worship around him. And you can see Jacob's process of discovery, right? He says, behold, look, a ladder. Behold, look, angels going up and down. Behold, look, the Lord sitting above them all. God reveals himself miraculously to Jacob in this dream. And not only that, but then the Lord talks to him, right? The Lord speaks. The one that Grandpa Abe talked about. The one that Isaac talked about. And he says, I'm going to keep my covenant established with Abraham through you. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to give you the offspring. You will be multiplied as far as the east is from the west to the north to the south. All the families of the earth shall be blessed through you. The baton has officially been passed. God has given this deceiver the bearer of the covenant. And after God gives this amazing promise, 
After all, Jacob had received or uh, deceived his entire family, right? And now as a refugee left to his own devices on the run, the Lord says, I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. God is going to keep his word to Jacob in spite of Jacob's sin. Jacob's not a good dude, right? He got things the wrong way. And God keeps his word to us in spite of our sin. And that's what covenant love looks like, right? We spend a lot of time learning about. If you think all that's good, check this out, right? One of, all the, of all the places in the New Testament that Genesis 28 might be referenced, it's referenced in John chapter 1. What does John chapter 1 say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John tells us that Jesus, the Word, made flesh, was present during creation, and all things are made through Him, and there is no life outside of Him. And then He tells us that His Word, um, that this Word revealed Himself. He came to His own creation to make us know who He is, to teach us who He is, but we did not receive Him. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Full of glory, of grace, and of truth. And he says, no one has ever seen God, right? He says, but now the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. What is John chapter 1 all about? God's revelation of himself, showing us who God is. John the Baptist would go and pave the way. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is who this is. This is this God. And Jesus says to Nathanael after he starts calling his disciples, I saw you sitting under a fig tree, right? And Nathanael's like, how did you see me? You must be the Son of God. And Jesus says, if you think that's great, I am the latter in Jacob's dream. You will see greater things than these, Nathaniel. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending, not on a ladder, but on the Son of Man. Jesus is the ladder that connects man to God. He is the stairway. He left the presence of angels in celestial glory and pleasure, has descended unto the squalor of earth to show us this one truth, that no one gets to the Father but through Christ. He is the only way. He is the stairway to heaven. There is none besides Him. Dear friend, do you know God? Do you claim to know this Savior? How do you know Him? What truth do you know? There is no knowledge of God apart from the revelation of Himself. Anything that is true that you know about God is only because God revealed it. Right? There's no knowledge of salvation apart from the Son of God climbing down the ladder to tell us how to be saved and then achieving that salvation for us through death and resurrection. God's revelation of Himself hangs on all of our Christian faith. We have nothing if God has not said, I am who I am. A lot of you like to try fad diets. One of them is called Whole30. I've tried it. I've done it. Uh, I think we did it twice. And uh, it worked. <laughs> but I really like honey buns, so I don't do it a lot. But um, one of the uh, biggest proponents, the biggest leaders of the Whole30 diet, 
and I don't mean to dissuade you from dieting, but she's a, she's a lady named Melissa Urban, and she has a lot to say about holistic well-being, overall health and wellness. She's kind of one of the biggest influencers over these things. Um, she also has some things to say about God, some things to say about religion. In a recent post, she gave her followers eight things she wished someone would have told her about God. Eight things she wished someone... I'm just going to give you a few of them. I think it's like five. Here's the first one. She says, you can have a deeply personal, one-on-one relationship with God. You don't need a religion. You don't need a pastor. You don't need any sort of intermediary. Number two, God doesn't care what you call her. Him, her, Mother Nature, the universe, Big G, Little G, it doesn't matter. If you're not comfortable with God, call Him something else. Three, you can go to church anywhere, anytime. It doesn't have to be within four walls or in a community. If you feel connected to God, it's church. You can talk to God, number four, any way you want. She says, I get mad, I swear to God, I roll my eyes, I tell Him to knock it off. And finally, she says, God talks back to us. You just have to create the space to listen. Meditation, stillness, and nature facilitate your hearing. Is that how we hear from God? I'm all about healthy eating, right? But I'm about to go back to dairy now, you know, or or whatever I can't eat. Um, Because homegirl needs to stay in her lane, right? If, 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 If we have no standard, if God has not revealed himself, who we can believe whatever we want, right? Theology is up to our own devices. If God hasn't revealed himself, if he hasn't made a ladder to man, who cares? Sure, you can believe that, right? It might be bonkers, but you can believe it. But God has revealed himself. God has given us a standard of truth. We have that standard in our hands. He came down the ladder to meet us, to tell him about himself, to tell us how to worship him and how to be made right with him. We must guard ourselves against the baseless theology of this age. It is meaningless. It is irreverent and irrelevant. It means nothing. How do we guard ourselves against that? Sola Scriptura. God's word and God's word alone. No truth but God's truth. Like Nathaniel, we have greater things that we can possibly imagine to be found in his word. We claim to know the invisible God through the man Jesus Christ and have 66 books of his revelation given to us which majorly impact the way that we live our lives today. Speaking of how we live our lives today, Put yourselves in Jacob's shoes after he's had this dream. How are we to respond to God's self-revelation? God tells us who he is. What do we do with that? Makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? Verse 16, the response. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Jacob wakes up, right? And he's not sure if he's had a good dream or a bad dream. He's afraid. He realizes he was in the presence of the Lord and he did not know it. 
mixture of dread turned to awe and wonder turned to excitement. And this is how we should always approach God, isn't it? Isn't it? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is why we start our services with a moment of silence to be in awe of God, to confess our sins before Him. We could start our services with fog machines, right? And light shows and try to uh, get some kind of response out of people. But we don't want artificial worship. We want to ascend the mountain of God with fear and trembling when we meet together. That's where worship begins. Worship begins by saying, how awesome is this place? This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And what Jacob means by that statement is that this is both where God wants to reside, to be with man, and this is also where we find access to heaven. God comes to us, and therefore now we get to go to him. Does that make sense? And this would be the very place where the temple would be built. And God indeed would dwell with man again, not like the Garden of Eden, but in the Holy of Holies, so that the priest could go in and intercede for the sin of man. They built him a house, right? But this is more than just a foreshadowing of a physical temple. We're going to see even more in these next few verses, 18. Look, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. And then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I can come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So Jacob wakes up. And remember the stone thing? Right? We're like, how in the world do you sleep on a stone? Um, I don't know that he was actually sleeping on it. A, a custom of that day was to move a big stone like out of the woods and into a direct path to show that something is ahead, is a, like a signal, a warning sign. And that was for him probably, don't step on my head. I'm sleeping here tonight. Right? There's a person here. Leave me alone. Um, some kind of symbol for passersby. And probably where we get our understanding of a tombstone for a grave, right? Literally a stone on top of the head of the grave. Um, anyways, that's, you, can, you can research that on your own. Um, but Jacob now takes this stone and makes it a pillar for the household of God. And I believe this pillar foreshadows the household of God in the New Covenant, the church. The people of God. We humble stones, says First Peter, have been come together as bricks laid on top of each other with Christ as the foundation. We are now the place where God dwells. He has desired to dwell with man in us. And he pours on us the oil of the Holy Spirit to make us born again, regenerated, consecrated for his purposes. And then Jacob calls that place Bethel, which means what? House, house, a common expression, an analogy for the church in the New Testament. The house of God, we say. Then he makes that vow of commitment that he will continue trusting in God as God provides for him. And isn't that what we do every day and every week when we assemble together on the Lord's Day? We, we reaffirm 
our trust in God to meet our every need, and we vow to worship Him and Him alone, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and He alone. And then Jacob gives the first tithe, right? At the end there. Sacrifice of some kind. Uh, Melchizedek uh, technically gives the first tithe in chapter 14, but Jacob gives it in a different way, I think, foreshadowing our sacrificial giving today. Now, do you know what all this means? What, what am I, where, where are we going with this? I think it means that our response to God's revelation of himself ought to be deeply connected to the church. God's revelation of himself and our response to it ought to be deeply connected to the church. Jacob meets with God and then immediately expresses his devotion, commitment, and sacrifice directed toward the desired dwelling place of God on earth. We claim, you and I, to have met with God. In fact, we claim to be the people where God's glory dwells, which makes membership important. Amen? And we come together each Lord's Day to express devotion, commitment, and sacrifice. We do that privately throughout the week, but we uh, do it in a a specific way when we come together, not isolating any of our worship. We are meant to worship together. When we are saved, we are saved into the body of Christ. When we worship the living God, we do so as a member in His body. And here's the disconnect we have today. Many evangelicals claim to know the revelation of God, but have no love for Him or for His church. They blaspheme the church. They hate the bride of Christ. They claim Christianity, but have no anointing oil of the Holy Spirit. They say they believe in God, but have never been in awe of His house. They say Christ is their first love, but withhold their generous gifts from Him. Paul Washer says it like this. It's like saying you were hit by a Mack truck, but you don't have any scratches on you. You're lying. You haven't met God. You don't know the revelation of God to man. You haven't ascended the stairway to heaven. You've not met Christ. And this is where I have the duty as your pastor, as the preacher of this text, to say where on earth is your commitment to Christ? And where on earth is your commitment to the local church? I know firsthand, okay, how difficult and upsetting and tiring and frustrating serving in the body of Christ can be. It's hard. It's hard a lot of times. It can be thankless. And and, and sometimes it feels like you're not making any difference, like it doesn't matter at all. But beloved, our service and sacrifice and commitment to the local church is not about us or pleasing one another. When we express our commitment in the body of Christ, we express our commitment to Christ. That's what it's about. When we show up early and we stay late, when we foster relationships with one another, when we give generously to the work of the ministry, when we sign up for anything the preacher ever says to sign up for, when we come to work days, when we pray over the prayer needs in the bulletin, when we show up week after week saying, what can I do? How can I help? Where can I serve? And quite frankly, those are phrases I don't hear a lot. Which gives me the most pause and hesitation to wonder if you're ready for this replant and if this has been a wasted effort last year. Are you committed to the body of Christ? 
Are you committed to the local church? Have you met God? Then give yourself to him. Rise early in the morning and set up the pillar. Give yourself to him. It is not a wasted effort to give yourself to Christ. We are the pillar of God. We've met the Holy One. Who is there to harm us if we're zealous for doing good? None. Why are we not committing ourselves? The replant is pending on our commitment and our service in the church. Christ will hold all of us personally accountable for every deed done in the body, good or bad. And that includes what we did in his church or didn't do. Don't do it because I told you to. Don't start doing things because the preacher preached about it. Meet God. Be in awe of God. I don't know how to teach you that. Be in awe of His holiness, His majesty, His amazing love for sinners that He would come to earth and die for us. That is the only thing that has kept me in this church and in this pulpit in the last five years. I would have lost steam a long time ago. Would it not be that I know God? And I, I can't get enough of Him. I'm in awe of Him. The fact that the God of all creation made Himself known to me and called me out of darkness and traded my sins with His righteousness and implanted me in His body and said, be my arm, be my leg, be a member in my body. I, I didn't, he didn't do that for me so that I would come and say, you know, this place is lame. It has a lot of problems and a lot of hypocrites. Jesus didn't do that so I would complain about his bride. Jesus did that so that I might come in and say, how awesome is this place? This is where heaven and earth meet. This is the household of God. After Jesus saved me as a teenager, I was looking for every excuse I could possibly find to go to the building and be with the people. Any event that was ever held, anything they ever did, I would go during the week after school and pester the pastor with questions. I would volunteer for things I didn't know how to do. I came to all the Bible studies. I helped with facility projects. Went to band practice. Anything I could do. I wanted to be there seven days a week if I could. One time I signed up for a sewing class. <laughs> that some old ladies were hosting. Didn't last long. But I tried it. Turns out you had to have a sewing machine. I didn't have a sewing machine. I went to like two meetings. But... Are you looking for any excuse to be with the body of Christ? Or are you giving it your bare minimum, dodging every nudge of the Spirit to finally get involved? We are on a dangerous trajectory. I would do a disservice to you and to the Lord if I didn't tell you that. It's been the same handful of people doing all the replanting work. The replant team has made a goal of 80% participation from this body in every ministry that we have. 
If we don't have 80% participation, it's not a ministry worth doing. Because we refuse to be a church that has the same 10% of people, right? Like all the other churches around here. We're not going to be satisfied with that. That means if you don't come to our core doctrine classes in the fall, we're going to look at you like you have 10 heads. That means if you don't give small groups a try, we're going to pester the hang out of you until you finally come. That means if we do outreach groups in a few weeks, you give it a shot. You don't just get the t-shirt. You go all in, right? We are a church that has been transformed by the gospel. We treasure Jesus Christ. And therefore we teach truth in the Bethel of God. I invite you today to set up your own stone in God's house. Get out the oil. Get out your tithe. Give what you have to Jesus. Not because I told you to but because Jesus is worth it. And if you don't know how worthy he is, again, let me say it one more time. Look at the ladder. Look at the stairway. Come to the steps today. Repent of your sins. Believe on Christ. He is the revelation of God. He made himself known to us that we might have eternal life forever and ever and ever. He died the death we deserved that we could have life in him. Come to Christ and come to the house of God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.